Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Once we make a commitment, uh, we've acknowledged the breadth and impact of our struggle, now we come to understanding the origin, motive, and history uh, of our addiction. Now this step may not be as satisfying as we would like for it to be. Because oftentimes what happens is, once we know why, to the degree that we know why, we think that should make what easy, or at least easier. You know, once I understand the history behind something and what it means to change it, that feels like it should make it easy. Uh, There's a couple of reasons that doesn't work. Uh, First, sin is not rational. Uh, Theologian Millard Erickson, he says all sin is ultimately irrational, not just addiction. Uh, Though people persuade themselves that they have good reasons for sinning, when examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen that every cause of sin uh, ultimately just does not make sense. We're never going to look back at our sin and go, that was a great idea. Um, and so the why is never going to be as, as appealing as we want. And secondly, our goal has to be effectiveness at change, not ease of change. This journey is not an easy one. And anything that we do that begins to make us think that it should be easy is probably going to unduly discourage us. And so we take another look at history. Uh, We won't go through that as much here, but this would be just allowing people in your group, in your support network, to get to know what are the things that contributed uh, to the particular motives that I have. Now, when it comes to identifying and talking to your motives, um, it, it can be harder with addictions than it is with other areas of life struggle. And one of the reasons for that is that the term addiction implies longevity. And so over the course of time, motives are going to change. And so I think in that sense, it can be helpful to look at what motives were dominant at different stages in the addictive process. So you'll probably have some early motives. These are the things when I first began to experiment uh, that made this substance appealing to me. And then there's the later motives. This is once I got good at it and I found out what my substance could do. I learned how to use it for particular reasons. Um, Then there's the current motives. Uh, You know, whatever it is that's driving the addiction in this season of life. Uh, And then there's the self-perpetuating motives. Uh, Those areas where I am using the addiction to correct the problems that it creates. Uh, And so for just the various areas of addiction or substances that you struggle with, uh, I give you a little chart here where you can go through as we talk about motive and begin to say which motives played a role at those different junctures. Now as we look at motives, I think what Ed Welch has to say is helpful. He says, the voice of your addiction is really your own mini-me. That's your voice you're hearing. 
That is what you did with your addiction. You practiced. Secretly, um, more and more of your life was becoming about your addiction. Uh, that whatever these motives are, they are the motives of my heart. They are things that drive me. What would some of them be? Maybe we think of our substance as a social lubricant. It, it just makes it easier to relate to people. Uh, or achievement. You know, there, uh, I worked in an uh, at-risk after-school program for a period of time. And you would see kids who strived really hard and they, they struggled in whatever area was important to them. Maybe it was a sports team they wanted to be in or the band. And the talent just wasn't quite there. And so they wouldn't make the team. And very frequently after that would be a time when they would go on the party scene. And it's pretty easy to be a world-class partier. I mean, there's not a lot of talent involved in just getting inebriated enough to be the one that's the center of attention at the party. And so it becomes an easy way to achieve or reward. Uh, you know, sometimes our substance becomes our reward of choice. And when that happens, um, the substance begins to be attached to all of the good parts of life. Whenever I do good, this is what I get. Uh, relaxation. Uh, this is where our addiction becomes our hobby. Uh, actually, nothing good really has to happen. Uh, it's just what we use to fill downtime. Escape. Now addiction is a refuge. Now addiction is attaching to all of the bad parts of life. Whenever something goes wrong, I begin to turn to my substance. So when something goes good, my substance is my reward. When things are boring, it fills the time. When things are bad, it's my refuge. Loneliness. Uh, this is often a later motive. When things are beginning to fall apart, relationships are beginning to deteriorate. Now addiction becomes my companion. Just in that brief journey, do you see how easy it is for all of life to become a reason to use. As more and more of our coping mechanisms that we were talking about, the ways that we reward ourselves, incentivize, deal with stress, all of that, as those things fade, addiction, addiction is more than willing to step in and fill the void. Um, another motive, uh, cynicism, just a form of rebellion against the seeming arbitrariness of life order, and that seems odd because we think addiction creates disorder, um, but there's such a strong sense of ritual with addiction. Um, Kent Dunnington uh, speaks to these two in a, a couple of different ways. He says, addictions exert enormous control uh, over human persons in part because they supply the need for an ordering principle. The person in the grips of an addiction finds that she operates in a profoundly simplified moral terrain in which every activity, every relationship, every object of value is reinterpreted and invested with meaning only as it relates to the end of the practice of addiction. Uh, addictive objects are addictive because they enable the person to regulate their lives. 
Uh, that is why among the various uh, classes of mind-altering substances, very few people are addicted to hallucinogens uh, like LSD or um, mescaline. Hallucinogens are unpredictable in their effects such that the user can never know what type of trip to expect. And so those don't tend to be addictions of choice. And I think this next quote is just incredibly profound. He says, addictions can be interpreted uh, as one available modern response to the lack of any common consensus about the telos or end of human action. Addiction is in fact a kind of embodied cultural critique of modernity uh, and the addict a kind of unwitting modern prophet. So what he's saying there is in our day and age, we don't tell people what to live for. There's no agreed upon end of life of you're just supposed to enjoy life and whatever that means for you is fine and great. There's no agreed upon worthwhile of what it means to make the world a better place to live a good life. We just kind of say, go out there and find it. And in the midst of all of that ambiguity, uh, the addict says, okay, I'll enjoy life. And there, they become this living prophet that is pointing to the degree to which our culture will not say what makes life worth living. Another motive could be punishment. I could punish myself because I feel like a failure. I could use addiction to punish somebody else because I feel like they're nagging or trying to control me. You may not find your addiction there or your motive. If, if all that does is go, ah, now that I've heard those, it's not that, it's this, let me put it into words for you, great. Uh, you'll see a couple of Bible studies there from Luke 9 and Ecclesiastes in the larger mentoring book that we talked about. Uh, Bible studies like that are throughout. Uh, where as we go through this journey, you can begin to see what the biblical underpinnings of those things are uh, as you go through. But the question becomes, whatever motives that I have, how do I talk to them? What do I do with that information? Well, we learn about motives to start healthier conversations. Conversations with God, with others, and with ourselves. You know, Scripture talks about this in lots of ways. There's kind of the old self, new self, spirit, flesh, sin nature, new nature in Christ. Um, you know, what our basic strategy is at this point is to recognize the distortive motive. You know, I've got to be able to hear it. Uh, when I coach little kids in baseball, and that, that's one of my favorite things to do, uh, there's always the, the kids out there and they think they know how to hit, they don't know how to hit. Uh, and, and they get up there and every, every one of them, they either throw their arms out like that or they drop their arms and drag. Uh, and I'll try to tell them, you're not swinging right, buddy, let me help you swing. No, I know what I'm doing, coach, I'm doing it right. And, and then there's inevitably that point when we're going through practice and they do it and they feel it. And what immediately happens at that moment? Their head goes down. They feel a moment of shame. They're like, oh no, coach has been right all along. Well, I think that's the best moment ever. I get excited. Not because I'm right, because I'm like, dude, if you can feel it, you can fix it. If you can get up there and you swing like this, and you go, no, ah, hands come. When I can tell it, that, that first part of just recognizing, these are empty promises. 
I'm never going to doubt the empty promises of addiction until I recognize them as empty. And the first way that I express faith is not by refuting, but just by doubting. Uh, and then I do want to challenge the message uh, and choose ways to honor God. Most important about all of this, do it with somebody else, not just by yourself. And so uh, I give you a little bit of a, a box diagram here because when it comes to these motives, uh, we've kind of got two sets of options. Uh, we're either going to agree or disagree. That has to do with the cognitive uh, value aspect. Uh, and we're either going to obey or disobey. And that creates four sets of choices. Uh, and you can kind of see where the journey exists there. Uh, and, and what I do uh, is I give you a journaling tool uh, where hopefully you can begin to capture this in real time. Now, if you look at the top of that journal tool, what's the first thing it says? Have you called your sponsor, accountability partner, pastor, or counselor? Um, do not begin reflecting and writing until the answer is yes. A journal is not a replacement for a person. But if I call say, I'm struggling, I'm starting to put my thoughts down on paper, I want to talk to you about it later, and I've just got a, a reach out for help, I've got a lifeline. Then coming back, and, and you'll see, this kind of takes you through uh, the journey that we're going to be going on here, where you can begin to organize the way that you're thinking about this moment into the steps of the journey uh, that we're on. Uh, you'll see on those 1 to 10 scales, one of the main things that we're looking at, where is your level of commitment? Just, you know, in this moment, I, I don't automatically circle 10 because that's the right answer. I want to be honest. If I'm feeling weak at this moment and my commitment level is at a 3, I want to be honest about that. That probably means I need to call and say, look, I'm feeling weak right now. This isn't just about thinking clearer. I... I'm feeling weak. Um, you know, what is my willingness to enact my plan? That thing that we created at the end of step two. Probably when you're doing this kind of uh, exercise, that's when you're going to see some of the revisions uh, that need to be made. 